Hello, everyone. Uh, welcome to today's episode of Nick's Notes. I am incredibly privileged and honored to have on with me Zsa Zsa Lau, who's at 25 Madison. It's an early stage venture fund in New York that invests in a number of great health tech companies. And prior to that, well, I first met her when she was at uh, uh, early stage investor headline ventures and led deals in companies such as L. LME, Airvet, Tiny Care, and, and much more. She's been at Clover and Google. Uh, she's been at TikTok. And she originally studied molecular biology at Yale University, where she also played the cello. And I don't think she's going to play the cello for us today, um, but I think that's pretty cool. Welcome, Jaja, to the program. Thanks, Nick. Thanks for having me. This is really exciting. It's it's really great to have you and 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 have you share your perspective. So let's jump right into the good stuff. Um, you're a seed stage health tech investor. You look at a lot of deals. Uh, what are you seeing sort of now versus a year ago? Um, you know, sort of economic climate has changed. We're sort of we we sort of think we're in a post pandemic environment um, versus being in the thick of it. What are you seeing that's different now versus a year ago? Yeah, so to caveat this, when I was at Headline, I was looking at pretty much Series A deals, and so I've only been in the seed world for about two months now, so let me just caveat of that. Um, but I do think that you know the whole hypiness of the market has quieted down a little bit. You know, it's still I, I think it's touched kind of the growth stage, uh, deals and markets have been more than, you know, seeing the ripple effects downstream to seed yet. But, you know, so we're seeing some of that, it's, you know, a little quieter, slower pace now compared to where it was like a year ago. I think spaces wise, um, in terms of healthcare specifically, I think in 2021, telemedicine behavioral was all the rage, uh, specifically in D2C. And this is probably because of the big rounds that companies like Elevate and Cerebral and Headway, Bryline were getting. And so, you know, I think a lot of people started to pour money across many subspecialties of behavioral mental health. Um, I think we were also deep in the trenches of COVID a year ago. So having care be 100% virtual was very top of mind for people which actually isn't a bad thing for behavioral mental health because it probably is the only specialty of medicine that doesn't require any kind of real physical examination. Um, so the discrepancy in care quality between in-person and virtual um, is actually probably the smallest. Uh, so that was 2021, uh, big year for behavioral and mental health. Um, nowadays, I would say I'm seeing a lot more activity in kind of the holistic, complementary, alternative medicine space, however you want to define it. Um, a lot of, especially, I don't know, in the past quarter or so, um, seed and Series A-wise, um, it's really accelerated, I think, with millennials and Gen Zs shying away from traditional Western medicine and the culture of, you know, pill popping and all of that. Um, ironically, actually, millennials are actually the most, are more unhealthier than Gen X were at the same age in terms of like chronic illness. Um, however, millennials are also more skeptical of traditional medicine. So maybe that's why we're seeing, um, you know, I'm seeing this wave of kind of seed series A startups in this space. 
Um, so, yeah, I think that's kind of like spaces wise and trends what I'm seeing today versus like a year ago. And I also think generally in healthcare, um, I'm also seeing fewer verticalized plays. Um, and instead, it seems like companies, both B2C and B2B, are focused on more horizontal plays. I, this might be because we have just literally inundated the market of every single vertical play over the past five-ish years. Uh, but that's also something I've noticed. And well, first of all, I, I agree with in, in those observations, right? In that, you know, how many different vertical plays can, how, how narrow can we make the slices? Some of the hype coming out of the market as an entrepreneur, I think is actually a good thing because, you know, only better companies are going to get funded now. Um, one of the challenges that I think, and would love to know your perspective as an earlier stage investor, whether it's seed now or series A at headline, but, you know, companies have gotten private valuations last year that were amazing, right? Incredible, outrageous. The, the one I always use is Hinge Health at $6 billion, right? Is Hinge Health worth more than Clover, Alignment, Talkspace, uh, and this other, whatever else put together, right? Something has to give here because I'm talking to late stage investors, people I know who are just why would we invest in a private company where there's no liquidity when we can make investments in a public company, help turn it around and make a quicker two, three, four X return, right? So how does this all play out? Does the market get a lot more difficult? Do some of the non-viable companies need to go away? How does this sort of shake out with falling market caps here, high valuations and flush companies here and early stage companies over here? Yeah. Um, I think that, you know, I mean, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, but we do, we are seeing a bit of a slowdown, um, tiny bit, you know, at the seed series A stage these days, people are back to doing more diligence. People are back to taking more time during the processes, at least from the, from what I'm seeing. And I think it's generally a good thing, <laughs> you know, people, VCs are doing more diligence compared to, you know, like a year ago. Um, I think I'll end up normalizing in a few months, probably later this year, and then, you know, valuations will basically have a reset, I think, at the early stage. We were, I think we're already seeing a lot more, you know, coming down to earth um, on the growth stage side of things, but it's going to have that ripple effect down to early stage later this year is my guess. Uh, I think for those companies who raised tons and tons of money ahead of where they were in 2021, I think they're in for a reckoning, honestly, um, where they really will have to ramp up that growth, meet ex investor expectations, or they're in for you know a tough few years, is my guess. I think also we'll see a lot more M and A as a result, um, you know, of you know it just you know if you can't. Again, it's like what, what you're saying, if you're not meeting these expectations, like, you know, how else are your investors going to see that liquidation? Um, yeah. Well, and, and also, right, the, the SPAC hype, has, which fed some of the market valuation hype because everyone was SPACing everything too early, right? Investors are suing for their money back. No one wants to SPAC anymore. Like SPAC is a bad word now. I think that will also sort of adversely affect uh, the overall scene. And in a way, again, I always say as an entrepreneur, 
uh, it's a good thing because great companies should get funded and will always get funded and noise should not. Uh, to switch gears a bit, I get asked this question to ask on this show whenever I have VCs more than any other, which is, you know me, I'm a multiple time founder. I know how to come to you for money. I have a rep. How, what do you look for in a first time founder? What does it take for a first time founder to get a check from Jaja and 25 Madison? Yeah, so I think if you're a first time founder beyond the usual credentials and backgrounds, the number one thing that I like to look for is an obsession with the product or the company that they're building. And this is because, I mean, I think there's many reasons why people will be obsessed with what they're building. It might be that they've had a really big and impactful personal experience of that space or that product. It might be because, you know, their family has spent decades and decades in this space, so they have a unique angle into the in, into what they're building. Or it might just because they have their, you know, in their previous job, they had this, you know, huge pain point and it just really gnawed away at their soul or something in their past, in their past job. So um, I think having this obsession with, this specific problem that you're solving is really important because it keeps the founders and the people in the game even when times get tough later on which inevitably it will at some point and i think that for me on the opposite of the spectrum there's people who they will found a startup for the sake of founding a startup they're not particularly passionate or you know obsessed with what they're building and I think that they, you know, but I must, you know, they're very smart people. They just find this space or this area interesting, right? Um, but I feel like those usually are the first people to bounce when things get very difficult. So personally, I think that obsession really drives resilience over time. So that's like a kind of a personal attribute that I like to see. Yeah. And, you know, I, I, I think that when I talk to health tech entrepreneurs and including my own story, right, and Renee's story, but I think you hear a lot more people get to health tech startup because of healthcare experiences. My father had this. My kid had this. I had this. I lost my wife. The, these very sort of emotionally gut-wrenching personal experiences that get people to say, I want to make this better, right? And I actually think that's a really good thing because that passion will get you through the bad times, right? This is not a space to come to analytically. It's a space to come to from a personal point of passion. Um, you are you've, you were at a Series A fund. You're now at a seed fund that also has a incubator accelerator studio model. When an entrepreneur looks what what kind of entrepreneur should come for capital versus come for the studio incubator, whether it's you or Techstars or Y Combinator? What is the right, how do you pick what's right for you? I guess to step it back a little bit. So the way that 25 Madison Studio works today is basically we work with founders at the ideation and pre-seed stage. We're true partners to them beyond just offering them offering funding. So we have 24 specialists at the studio who are working full-time on helping our incubator companies with marketing, product, engineering, design, you know, you name it. We're really like a full-stack partner on the services side of things. And our goal is to help our student incubations get to a point where they can raise a seed that's led by their outside fund. 
And so as a result of us being so hands-on for incubator companies, our economics are obviously better compared to if that same team were to take a straight angel or a VC round. Um, on the accelerators were simil more similar to an incubator, I would say, in that um, they also you know, have more hands-on help, but it's obviously, there's a timeline because it's usually a program, right, like a few months. And there's usually like a demo day where everyone graduates together. So um, it's similar to a studio, but it's more programized. And so it's a set time. And they, you know, also, um, I guess, have uh, services and like, you know, hands-on health element to it. Um, I would say the kinds of entrepreneurs that work well with a studio model would be first-time founders. I think that's one bucket of entrepreneurs that find student model very enticing and I would say the second bucket of founders that find a studio model uh, to be a fit would be folks who are really deep specialists in whatever space they're working on so a lot of the times we'll have founders come to us and they'll say hey I've spent like 10 years in machine learning I'm a machine learning expert or I've spent you know 10 years you know on the healthcare side of things um, but um, they want help with you know the other parts of the business so it's also like another profile that I think works well with uh, an incubator. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So my last question for you, I always do a different hot take and, and try to make it topical and relevant. Um, the uh, U.S. House of Representatives just passed a $35 cap on insulin, right? Which a lot of affects, diabetes affects tens of millions of Americans. Does that become law this calendar year? Does the Senate pass it and does it become law? Yeah, I think that it does become law. Maybe not this calendar year. I really, you know, background, I have no background in politics. So, but uh, I think that there, if you look across, um, you know, both Republicans and Democrats, it seems like both parties are, have some kind of vested interest to have this cap being passed. I've heard a little bit about it. So, um, and it's one of these, it's, a, it's been a very, very hot topic for, you know, many, many years, specifically on insulin. Um, and I think that it seems like, you know, from both sides of the fence, they both, both relevant Democrats are both interested in having this passed. Like, I don't, I don't see why not, really. Um, I agree with you, and I think it's something that will help people across the political spectrum. It's hard, it's hard to say why you're on the other side of this in in, our, in an election year, which is why I'm hopeful that it passes for the millions of diabetics out there. Anyways, um, Jaja, it was awesome to have you on the program. She's Jaja Lau at 25 Madison. You'd be lucky to have her as an investor in your company. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time to be on the program. No, thank you, Nick. Thank you.